We are continuing a series that I've entitled, I Believe in the Church, because for so many people in our culture, there's a confusion of what the church is, and many people reject the church, and they don't even realize or recognize what they're actually rejecting, and the importance of understanding what really is the church, what are they all about, how do they function, how does it function, what is its purpose, and we've been using and looking at the letter of Paul to the Ephesians to think about the church and its function and its purpose and why it exists. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. And as we, we will see here in this passage that God, as we have seen in the other weeks, that God not only reconciles man to himself, but he reconciles each other to himself and to one another. And that is the beauty of the church, that he is in the business of not just bridging the gap, Christ, between God and man, but he's in the business of bridging the gap between one another. Because not only have we been alienated from God, but because of sin and the fall, we have been alienated from one another. And so we see here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, this beautiful picture of God's rescue mission, of God's mission through his church to bring unity amongst the body. And so hear the word of God here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for, though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have prayed and that we have sung and now we have come to the place where you will preach to our souls. Lord, there are some out here this morning that have never heard the word of God. There are some out here this morning that it has been a while since they have heard the word of God. There is some here this morning that it it has been a while since they have been to church. And so, Lord, in the midst of confusion and maybe some sense of disorientation, Lord, I pray that you 
would open up their minds and their hearts to see the freshness of your word. And Lord, for some of us, we've heard the word. We've been to church. But Lord, the freshness of your word doesn't seem as fresh as it did maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And so Lord, for those of us this morning, I pray that you would remove distraction. You would take maybe a familiar text and make it come alive for us once again. And Lord, ultimately, regardless of who we are, I pray that we would see Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Author Susie Baker wrote a book titled The All Better Book. And in The All Better Book, she asked a um, dozen elementary school students to solve the world's biggest problems. Biggest problems like... Uh, what do we do about the shrinking ozone layer? And, and what do we do to help people stop smoking? The, the adults surely can't figure it out, so maybe the elementary kids can figure it out. And she does this in the context of this book, The All Better Book. And one of the questions she asks is this, with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where people are no longer lonely and disconnected. With the billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out why people are still lonely and disconnected. What do you suggest? Well, an eight-year-old girl by the name of Kalani stepped up to the plate, and she said, people should find lonely people and ask them their address and their name, and then ask people who aren't lonely for their address and their name. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely people and not lonely people together in the newspaper. That's one idea. Sounds like a future CPA. A nine-year-old boy by the name of Max said, I got an idea. Let's make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? Talking food was his solution. Eight-year-old Matt said, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife, and take them places. But it was Brian, another eight-year-old, who gave probably the most revealing solution when he said, maybe we should just sing a song, stomp your feet, or read a book. Sometimes when I think no one loves me, I do one of these. You see, the, the problem of being disconnected, the problem of being lonely, is something that runs deep. It's painful. The painful reality of being alone, the painful reality of being disconnected is something that plagues us regardless of our age, regardless of our circumstances. And when we begin to understand the Bible and we begin to understand history, we realize that loneliness and feeling of disconnect is not something that happened the last 20, 30, 40 years, that all we have to do is go back to the beginning of the Bible and we see the origin of disconnection. We see the origin of loneliness that ultimately because of sin and the fall, we would forever be plagued with this idea of being a people that are divided. Forever we would experience the pain of disconnection. We would forever experience the pain of loneliness. 
And not only do we see here in this text this morning that we are people that are alienated and disconnected from God by nature, but we are also a people that by nature are disconnected and alienated from one another. And so when Jesus comes into the world to fix what is broken, he is not just reconciling people unto himself, but he is reconciling each other as one. He is not only connecting God and man, but Jesus comes into the world to connect us to one another into a new community. You see, we are ultimately by nature strangers, alone in the world. And for some of us, that is more painful than we even fail to admit. We might have friends, we might have acquaintances, but deep down inside, each one of us at some point in their life has felt estranged, has felt disconnected, has felt divided, has felt alone. And for some of you here this morning, it might be at its most painful point this morning. So I want us to look briefly this morning at a few questions, because I believe this passage that we read this morning gives us the solution and the answer to the problem that has plagued us from the beginning of time. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, what actually causes disconnection? What causes division? We find the answer here in verse 11 and 12. How does Paul do it? In verses 11 and 12, what does Paul do? He gives us a case study. And what's the case study? He gives us a case study of Jew and Gentile. He calls them the circumcision and the uncircumcision, right? And he says... To the Jew and the Gentile, he says, for the Jew, you are the circumcision. You were the one that had the law. You were the one that had the Bible. You were the one that had the nation. You were the one that was connected to God. And on the other side, you had the Gentile. And so basically what Paul is doing, there's only Jew and Gentile, right? According to the Bible, there's only one other race other than the Jew. It's the Gentile. So basically what Paul is doing is very simply just dividing the world in two. He's saying there's people that are near to God and there's people that are not near to God. And historically, it was the Jew before Christ that was near to God. It was the Jew that had the law. It was the Jew that had the Bible. It was the Jew that was part of the nation. It was Jew that was close to God. And the Gentile was afar off. And what happened is here in verse 11 and 12, he said there was a division between those that knew God and those that didn't know God. There was a division between those that were near to God and there was division between those that were apart from God. And what happened? What happened? Because of human nature and because of sin, humanity took something that was good and used it to elevate it so they could look down upon others. You see, God gave the, the law to the Jew. Why? to look down upon the Gentile and say, we're close to God and you're not. We have the law of God and you don't know. Why did God give the law to the Jew? So that they would understand the holiness of God. They would understand that this God above any other gods is someone to reckon with. That this God apart from any other God that you encounter is one that should not be messed with. One that should be taken seriously. He wanted to create a nation for himself. But because of sin and because of the fall, they took something that was good, the law, and they elevated it 
to become something that they would use to look down upon other people, other people that weren't near to God, other people that didn't have the law of God. They looked down on the Gentile. They took good things and they lifted it up and that became the source of their identity. Their identity was no longer found in being a people that were rescued by God. Their identity became, we are the people that have the law and you don't. We are the people that are near to God and you are the people that are far away. And before we run too far away from that and say, oh boy, why would they do something like that? We do it every single day. We take good things and we elevate it. Whether it's our status in society, whether it's our political party, whether it's our race, whether it's our cultural background, whether it's our, our wealth, whether it's what we have, whether it's our religion, whether it's our denomination, whether we like a certain particular musical style, we take good things and we elevate it to the point where that becomes the source of our identity. No longer is Christ my identity, but these good things that God has given me, that becomes the source of my identity. My race, my culture, my wealth, what I have, my education, my religion, my denomination, the list goes on and on and on. We are in a constant state of comparison, and is there any other day that we feel the pressure, the pressure of life's comparison the Mother's Day. There are moms in here this morning, I know, that feel the weight of this. They look at other moms and they say, I don't measure up. Or there's moms that look down upon others and say, I wish you would just, if you, if you were like a mom like me, your kids wouldn't be that way. And so it goes both ways. There's moms that look down on other moms and there's moms that look up to other moms and say, I never measure up. There's women in this room that have never been able to have children. And today, a day that is supposed to be a day of celebration can be one of the most painful days. Why? Because we are constantly living in a state of comparison, comparing who we are and what we have or what we don't have. We are no better off than the division between the Jew and the Gentile from the beginning of time a constant state of comparison, and we wonder why there's division. We wonder why people are lonely. We wonder why people are disconnected. Paul tells us right here, because we've taken good things, and we've elevated it, and we look down upon others who don't have it. And the human heart is constantly at battle, trying to find their identity, trying to find its worth. But we wonder why we always fall short. And we wonder why we're always disappointed because we're constantly finding and striving to find our identity and our worth in something that is smaller than God in the person of Jesus Christ. So where does the problem of division in the church come from? Where does the problem of division in our world come from and people feeling disconnected and lonely? It is because of misguided and misplaced identity. But how does God solve it? It says here in verse 13 through 16, It says, in light of this division, this division that exists in in the church and outside of the church, what does God do to solve it? It says, but now in Christ Jesus, in verse 13, you were who, who, those that were far were what? Brought near. How? 
They were brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, the world takes this approach at division. The world will say when it, whether the division is division amongst cultures or division amongst races or just div- common uh, cultural divisions that exist in everyday life, in family, in parenting, in wealth, or whatever it might be. The world says this. This is the solution to division. We will scold you and we will educate you. Scolding and educating. We will scold you until there is unity. We will scold you until division is eradicated. And then we will educate you. They think the world goes, in order to cure division inside and outside of the church, we will educate the mind. And Jesus says, no. I will not scold you. I will not educate you. I will change your heart. You see, the problem with the division inside the church and outside the church, the division with people feeling disconnected and lonely, the problem with people feeling estranged and strangers in a, in a place, in a world that is supposed to be their home, is the problem of the heart. The heart needs to be forever changed. The heart needs to be forever transformed. And that's what happens here. Jesus says, I have to give people a whole different paradigm for how they gain an identity. And it's not going to be through their mind. It's not through scolding them or education. I've got to change their heart because when I change their heart, that's a whole new way of structuring and finding your identity. And he does this. What does he do? Verse 14. Look, at, look there with me. The first way that he changes the heart is what? It says, for he himself is our peace. Who did what? He broke down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That word hostility there is the word for hatred. He says he broke down the wall of hatred. You see, we are not divided just because we have different preferences. Ultimately, deep down inside, the problem with every human heart is there is a hatred that sometimes we don't even understand or recognize. And what Paul says Jesus did here is that through his work, through his flesh, he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility or the dividing wall of hatred. What is the dividing wall? Paul is alluding to the temple. There was a wall, and it it, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles was outside of the temple, and it was as far as the Gentiles were allowed to go. It was as far as the non-Jew was allowed to go. It was as far as the unclean were allowed to go. And what Paul is saying is that through Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ, that source of division, that thing that divided people became a source of hatred and hostility. And through his flesh, through the death of Jesus Christ, that wall of hostility and hatred gets torn down forever. Why is that significant? So there would be no more looking down. When that dividing wall comes down, that wall of hostility comes down, it's as if Jesus is saying, the end of comparison is here. That no longer through Jesus Christ do you have to keep looking to your right or to your left to find your identity. No longer do you have to keep looking around to seeing if you measure up. No longer do you have to keep looking down upon others because you feel like you have something that they do not have. The end of the comparison is here. 
only through Jesus Christ. He breaks down the wall of hostility and hatred. But he not only does that, breaking down the wall of comparison in verse 14, it says in 16, he goes a step further. And in 16, it says that he might reconcile to us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing hostility. You see, the person and work of Jesus Christ not only breaks down the wall of hostility and hatred and ends comparison once and for all, but Jesus comes in and he kills hostility. What does that mean? He kills hatred. Think about that. How does he kill hatred? How does he kill hostility? He does it through the cross. That Jesus takes on what? Our hostility. Jesus takes on our hatred. He becomes hatred and hostility for us. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He not only takes down the wall of hostility, he says, I will become hostility. The hostility that was reserved for you and for me. The hatred that was reserved for you and me. The wrath of hostility of God that was reserved for you and me was cast on to Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus Christ where he says it's the end of hostility. It's the end of hatred. But that is only through Jesus Christ. He not only ends comparison, it says that he kills hostility. And think about this. If anybody had the right to look down upon us, it would have been Jesus Christ. If anybody had the right to look down at us and say, you guys just don't get it. If there's anybody that had a right in their standing of perfection and righteousness to look down upon us and say, you guys just don't measure up. I'm done with you. If anybody had the right to come down and say, enough, I'm just going to start from scratch. I'm going to build a new humanity. I'm going to build a new creation. I'm going to get rid of the rest of you. It was Jesus Christ. But Jesus, the one who is part of the perfect race, the perfect person comes down and he says, I'm not going to eradicate you. I am going to submit myself to death. I am going to sacrifice my own life. I am going to take on the hostility and hatred of God so that you might live forever. He becomes the ultimate and perfect substitute. And inside the church, what happens? Inside the church and through the church, it says that he is building a new man. The word there is, should be translated a new humanity. That through the cross, he is making a new humanity. He makes all things new, a new creation that reflects the character and the love of God. Inside the church, God creates this new humanity. And the reality is this, that as we look out on Sunday morning and we see people of different races and different cultures and that we see people from different walks of life and different backgrounds and people that have just come to Christ and people that have been a Christian for 20 years. We see prostitutes and pillars of the church worshiping God together, being rescued by God and reconciled by God. What the gospel is telling us here is that through Christ, we have more in common with one another than the people that we actually grew up with. The gospel is announcing that I have more in common with a woman living in the village of Soweto in South Africa because she is in Christ than the people that grew up in my own block. Think about that for one second. Don't miss that. 
In Christ, I have more common with a person that lives in a village in Soweto than the people that grew up in my own neighborhood. That is powerful. And that is what God does through his church. Why do I believe in the church? Because only the church has that message. Only the church has that answer. Only the church says we have a message that comes in and takes our heart and kills division and kills hostility, not through our work, but through the work of Jesus Christ. So the message this morning is that I am a Christian first and I am white second. I am a Christian first and I am college educated second. The list goes on and on and on and only through the church and the message of Jesus Christ can that be made known. So lastly, what do we do about it? It's great, Rob. You told us that uh, the world's biggest problem is division and God cured it all. Let's all go home now. (laughs) What do we do? Tells us right here what we do about it. Actually skipped it and wanted to save it till the end. Twice, what does Paul say? In verse 11 and 12, he says this. Remember. Remember. Remember what? When you begin to think that you are superior to others, when you begin to think that you have the right to create discord and disconnection and division, when you think that you are better than someone else, Paul says, remember. Remember what? Remember that you were an alien. Remember that you were once estranged from God. Remember that one time you were not welcomed in the nation of Israel. Remember you at one time would have been asked to stand outside in the court of the Gentiles. Remember at one time you were divided and hostile from God. Remember, 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 remember. Because when I stop remembering, that's when everything falls apart. I need to remember who I am. It's this beautiful story of Glenda. In Australia, the public school system is not allowed to teach scripture in the classroom, much like here. But in Australia, they came up with a creative way to, for the students to learn scripture, and they asked people in the local churches if they would invite the students in to their homes to members' homes to learn the Bible and to learn Scripture. And one of the ladies in the local churches that was right next to the public, this public school in Australia, her name was Glenda, and every Friday, Glenda would invite an entire class to her house for lunch and honest conversation about Jesus. So they went every Friday, this group of students, every Friday, Friday after Friday after Friday, and slowly but surely, the Jesus stuff that they thought they were just going to to fulfill a requirement actually became just as important as the food. So it says that we came and more and more friends came with us. Some of these 15-year-olds were the worst sinners in the school, but Glenda just opened her heart every Friday afternoon and treated us like we were family. But then this happened one night. My friend Daniel was rather intoxicated, and we knew we couldn't take him to his house. His dad was an army man, and that would not work well. But we didn't want to leave him on the street, and so we said, let's take him to Glenda's house. She'll have him. 
She'll clean them up. So it was near midnight and we knocked on the door and it turned out that she was having a very posh dinner party with a lot of friends, but she didn't bat an eye. She welcomed us in, showed us straight up past her guests and into the back of the house. She got some spare clothes and said, throw them in the shower, clean them up and we'll settle in in the morning. The next morning we went back to Glenda's house around 10 a.m. to pick up Daniel. He was sitting at the kitchen table with Glenda. She had made him bacon and eggs. We took Daniel to Glenda's house because she had left a real impression on us that Christians actually like sinners. We had no doubt that she hated maybe some of our habits. She was a teetotaler after all and talked openly about avoiding alcohol. But even in that situation, her first instinct was not to condemn us but to love us more. It was absolutely extraordinary. Well, after about six months of scripture classes at Glenda's house and Friday afternoon events and this incident with Daniel, we began to find ourselves thinking that maybe this whole Jesus thing is real after all, that he is inescapable and that he is powerful. And so six to eight months later, five of us committed our life to Christ. We surrendered to Christ and accepted his mercy. This author goes on to write that five years later, he entered into the ministry And as he began his ministry, he said, there's one person I need to call, and it's Glenda. She must have some kind of strategy or program that she uses to to help people in ministry. And she said, what was it? What what books did you read? And what did you learn? And how did you become so knowledgeable about the Bible and inviting people into the home and so loving? And I mean, you have such a gift of ministry. Where did you learn it all? And she said this. It's actually very simple. I wake up. And I simply remember every day that I am nothing more than a broken, messed up failure apart from Christ and his love for me. Once I remember that, the rest is easy. This is the church. This is the church. A place for the poor. Why? Because we remember that apart from Christ, we are destitute. This is the church, a place for the orphan because we remember that apart from God, we are fatherless. This is a place for the prostitute because apart from Christ, all of our sin is scandalous. This is a place for those that are broken and weary to find rest and to find hope as God makes one people, a place where all people, all different races, all different cultures, all different skin color can coexist because God is making a new humanity. And when that begins to happen in the church, the power of the gospel is never more evident. Who needs the church? South Florida needs the church. Our communities need the church. Our world needs the church. A church that understands in light of God's mercy A church that understands that we are for each other more than that we are for ourselves. A church that is so secure in the depth of Christ's love for them that they are now free to love others as one people of God.